We'll continue on with church history, my great passion. Uh, but let's open up in prayer as we seek the Lord's guidance for us. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for allowing us to see your hand in history. We know that it's important. We know that it is foolish for us to ignore history. And we know, Lord, that you intend for us to learn from this. We pray, Lord, that we would learn what we need to learn. We pray that we would honor you. And we pray that we would apply this, most importantly, to our lives and to our day, to our families and to the world as we seek to carry out your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we're learning about today, I'm going to cover two things. So in a way, at least I only have two topics if not, and not several, and that helps me to focus at least. We're going to talk about the break or the schism or schism, however you pronounce it, between the Roman church and the Eastern church. And also we're going to talk about the Crusades. So two things that are actually related to each other. So we'll first cover the schism of the church. Now, when I say this, first off, is anyone familiar with this at all? Does anyone? Okay, you are familiar. I know my wife is familiar, good. I know you're familiar, you don't count. So, some people are familiar with the schism. When I, those of you who are familiar with the break between the, the Roman church and the Orthodox church, what do you think it was over? What would you say caused this schism between the two churches? Donna Reed, what would you say? Very good, yeah, not many people go there. Very good. Anybody else? What do you think of when you think of this? Jim? The corruption of Rome. Okay, good. The corruption. Yeah. It was certainly over what the Eastern Church perceived as corruption, doctrinally and otherwise. John? Just it seems like it was going to happen because there was a difference in language. That was uh-huh. a big factor. Mm. One was Greek, one was Latin. Excellent, yeah. It did seem like it was going to happen. It was pretty much inevitable. So in this section, we're going to cover the background for the schism, the reasons they broke apart, the split itself, and then the biblical perspective on the split, because there's actually quite a few reasons. So sadly, in a way, as Protestants, we're used to breaks. We're used to, uh, to splits or divisions within the church. That's been happening with us ever since the Reformation. Some people, I find, use this. They, they say, people outside the church, that is, they say, well, the church is fractured. This is a reason for them to not like the church. It's too broken apart. Certainly, the Eastern Church and the Roman Catholic Church think that we as Protestants are all fractured, so therefore we must be false since we're broken apart. The fact of the matter is, though, is that all splits in the church... Uh, are usually based on doctrine or power, which is what you guys have all alluded to. And doctrine and power, or problems with doctrine and power, have always been a problem because we are all sinful men since the start of the church. Those two things have been a problem. But the splits, even though they're on doctrine and power, uh, there's other causes for them, but this has been a reason why the Roman church and the Orthodox church cannot go back together. Because the same reasons that they split are the same reasons why they can't reunite. Sometimes splits are not actually bad. Sometimes fractures are not bad. The problem is what? The problem is, are they based on the word of God? Are they based on truth or not? What what caused the split? So let's see what caused the split. And that was in the case of this first major split. First off, the first major split, there were differences in theological perspectives. The Western church and the Eastern church. Now the Eastern church, 
as I mentioned last time I was up here, the Eastern Church and the Western Church didn't have a lot of access to theological education like we do today. Whenever you have a vacuum in theological education, whenever there's no study of the Word of God, there has to be something that replaces it. So in the Eastern Church, the thing that replaced it, I would say, would be on the right, would be mysticism an experience, a personal experience with God. That's what replaced doctrine in the study of doctrine. Connecting with God through experience as an alternative path for knowing God. Now, in the Reformation, that, they were all about a personal experience with God. That was kind of the point. You're, you have doctrine, or you have some doctrine, but it's all formalistic. You don't have a personal relationship with Christ. You don't have a personal relationship with God. But when does a subjective personal experience go bad? When is it not healthy? Well, it's not healthy when it's not based on truth, when it's just subjective and it's based on whatever we want it to be based on. So the Eastern Church was known for its mysticism, and that's actually why the Eastern Church today has no understanding or no tolerance really for the Reformation. Uh, even in where we live in Serbia, you can't even speak about the Reformation in the evangelical churches themselves, not just in the Orthodox churches. You can't mention the word Reformation, even though they're, they're Baptist and they're Protestants, which is interesting. In the West, however, same vacuum, same theological problem. They can't have access to theology. But they didn't replace it with mysticism. They replaced it with the sacraments. Uh, they replaced it with uh, the Eucharist. And they replaced it with, as was alluded to last week with Pastor Thad, the worship or the, the, uh, the veneration of relics. So same issue, uh, different, different approaches to how to resolve this issue. But the West, the thing to remember is that the West was much more doctrinal. How was a man justified before God? Whereas the East is how was a man united with God? Two different perspectives on what they, what they looked at. So the Eastern Church focused on our union with Christ. The Western Church focused on crucifixion and obedience to God. The question is, which is more important, our union with Christ or our obedience to God and how a man is saved? Which would you say is more important? Who had it right? Anybody can answer this. Yes, yes is the answer. They both had it right. But they both, thank you, they both tended to focus on those to the exclusion of the other. And that was the problem. So, getting to the conflict. The reasons for the conflict we already mentioned. And the first reason, actually, has to do with temporal issues, what Donna Reed alluded to. I have eight reasons. There's lots of reasons, but I focused on eight reasons of why there was a conflict. So you can count them as we go through here. The first was temporal issues. We already saw in the last class that, that we looked at that both Constantinople and Rome were fighting over the lands in between them. It was all about power. Who's the king of the land? Whoever's the king of the land gets to decide the religion of the land. You had mass baptisms uh, from Rome or from the Western Church all the way over to Russia. You had mass baptisms. And the people really had no say-so in that. They just had to go through with whatever their leaders would, would talk about. It was over temporal issues like state power and ownership of land. Rome and Constantinople both wanted certain lands, and they would go through processes and through times of getting these lands from each other. So temporal power was one thing. Geography or distance was also a factor. They were very highly separated. Rome was far to the west, and the other churches were far to the east. They were in different empires, as you see with the purple. That was the Byzantine Empire. So communications were slow and difficult. 
Travel back then was exceedingly difficult and dangerous. So there was a distance between the two. As John Hogue mentioned, languages were a difference. Uh, the Western church had the Latin language. The Eastern church had the Greek language. The Greek had stopped being used. Actually, it was used, which most people don't realize. It had stopped being used in Rome about the year 400 when the Vulgate came out. But it was actually used in Rome. The churches there used Greek. The Latin language had stopped being used in Constantinople about the year 600. So you had different languages with different works being written in them. So now you have two different theological perspectives that are indecipherable to each other. Even if the works crossed paths and they got to each other, they couldn't understand each other because the languages were different, and we know how that can be. Another reason, a fourth reason, Islam. Islam, as you learned last week, about the year 622 was coming on the scene, and it made inroads quite quickly. It forced different perspectives and worldviews, and it actually cut lines of communication. This is a picture of the Hajj, and those little dots, those millions of dots are people that are running around the, the Hajj there during their pilgrimage to, to Mecca. But how did it cut lines of communication? Well, in, in Rome, and we'll go back to the map, in the West, Rome was concerned in battling tribes, all these small tribes, trying to align itself. Because remember, they hadn't had a, a military or a, an emperor there for, well, now we're looking at 600 years. The church is having to exert its power and be the military leader, so it aligned itself with some of these tribes, especially one. Well, in the meantime, the East is battling Islam. So Rome had too many issues to deal with. Constantinople was battling Islam, so they just said, you know what, forget it. Uh, we don't have time for their problems. Let them deal with the Muslims that are attacking them. Let them deal with the tribes and the absence of power there. So Islam folk, uh, forced a, a different focus and worldview. Temporal power, papal power and authority. Uh, this was something that was very important to the breakup because the Pope had no longer had military authority since he was missing a powerful emperor. So he had more freedom to make claims. And we, we heard some of that last time about how uh, Constantine supposedly gave the church to the West and things like that when he moved, when he moved the capital. So paper, papal power and authority. Most people, when I ask them, what do you think caused the split? Most people say icons that that was the problem that Rome didn't like. They didn't like the icons. And this is called an iconostasis. It's a proper iconostasis because there's five levels to it. So every Orthodox church you see will have these sorts, this iconostasis, the wall that separates the, the Holy of Holies from the outer court. Icons was certainly a reason. Uh, as of 787, just a few hundred years before the split, Empress Irene declared not only were icons acceptable, they were necessary. So now they're saying icons are necessary for salvation, and Rome never would agree to this. Uh, interestingly enough, Rome would say that we shouldn't have any artwork and things like that in, uh, in our worship. And who is the very one? You go to the Vatican now, you can't, as we say, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a piece of art that has, uh, that has some sort of picture of a saint or of a deity on it there. But in the end... The official reason why the churches broke up was definitely theological. It was definitely doctrinal. And it came from Rome because they're the ones that gave more emphasis to that. The primary reason given that was weighty enough, that gave gravitas enough for a formal split, was something called the filioque clause. 
Uh, I consulted um, Amy Chafisi because I wanted to make sure my pronunciation was right and that I, was, uh, that I interpreted it right because I don't want to misinterpret filioque. What is the filioque clause? Some of you may know what this is already. When you covered the Nicene Council, 325, I know that you covered the, one of the results of the Nicene Council, and that was the creed that came out of it, the Nicene Creed. Most of us have heard of the Nicene Creed. Well, this is it right here. But what do you see on this that's outlined in white? We won't go through the whole creed, but we see at the very end, and we believe is the inference, in the Holy Ghost or in the Holy Spirit. That's the original Nicene Creed. That's how it ended. Well, in about 381, this creed was updated to the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, which is a mouthful to even say the title of this, much less the creed itself. Well, what did they do? Well, the last creed, the original said, we believe in the Holy Spirit. These people, they added, well, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and they added the rest, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So this, they might have added this. We think they added it because of an error called Macedonianism where they denied the deity uh, of the Holy Spirit. So that may be why they put this in there. But sometime in the ninth century in the West, the West started adding a word. And in the Latin, the word is filioque, but it, it's a very distinct meaning to this word. What is the difference between the last creed and this creed? Who knows what the difference is? Raise your hand. What's the difference? Mark Redfern. Excellent. Student of the day. You pick up your reward later. The clause means, and the Son. So as you notice there, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, not full stop, and the Son. They added that the Holy Spirit proceeds not just from God the Father, but from God the Son. And that was not the right thing to do according to the East. They did not like that at all. Why did the West do that? Well, they probably had an, they wanted to emphasize the full deity of Jesus Christ. And so the Eastern Church and the Latin Church had two different perspectives. The Eastern Church would say the Holy Spirit came from the Father and the Son came from the Father. No problem there, believed in the Trinity. But the Western Church would say that the Holy Spirit came from the Son as well. Well, why would they do that? Well, it was formally adopted in the West at the Council of Toledo in Spain. Now, for those of you who know about the tribes of Europe at the beginning, who knows what tribes were common in Spain in the early days of the church? Can anybody guess, hazard a guess at some of the names of the tribes? Well, we had the Goths, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, those types of people. These tribes, those that were Christian, were Aryan Christian. What was Arianism? What did Arianism say about Jesus? That he is not God. Arianism said he is not God. So they were Arian Christians. It could be, and most likely, that the West added this filioque clause in order to defend the deity of Jesus Christ, to really emphasize that. The Western Church saw the absence of the words as equal to something called monarchianism or modalism. Uh, and that it denied the Trinity. They said, if we don't have these words and the Son, we're sort of implying that there's not a Trinity. So we can't do that, especially with these 
these rascally Goths here who just came out of Arianism, we got to make sure that they're taken care of in, as far as their beliefs. They saw the filioque clause as strengthening the relationship between the Father and the Son. So they decided that the Holy Spirit uh, came from both the Father and the Son. Well, the East was offended. Why was the East offended at this when they got wind of it? They were offended because what's, what's special about the Council of Nicaea? It was the world's first ecumenical council, worldwide council. What's special about the Nicene Creed? It was the world's first ecumenical creed. Rome decided to change the creed without asking Constantinople, or really anybody else in the world for that matter. So they just kind of added that in there. That was highly offensive. That was one reason. What was the second reason? Well, the second reason is the Eastern Church saw this as heresy, that it confused the persons of the Trinity, and it led to modalism, the very thing that the Roman Church was trying to avoid and trying to, to keep from. So they both blamed a heresy as a reason for not having or having this, and it was actually the same heresy. The Eastern Church believed that if the Spirit proceeds from the Son as well as the Father, that the Son is another source of the divine nature. And if this is true, then the Father and Son are two different sources, and therefore we have two different gods. That's how they viewed that. Now, what's the biblical perspective, just very quickly? And we can't go through all of this, but we see that the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father, John 14, 16, and 26. We also see that the Holy Spirit is sent from the Son, John 15, 16, and 20. He specifically says he sends the Holy Spirit. So what's the problem here? Well, the problem is, is sent the same as proceeds from? That was the issue. They had no problem. The Eastern Church doesn't have a problem saying, well, yeah, the Son sends the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit proceed? Is, is the Son one of the sources of the Holy Spirit? Uh, a man named Robert Lethem put it very confusingly, but, but fully. The Holy Spirit hears the Father, receives from the Father, takes from the Son, makes it known to the church, proceeds from the Father, is sent by the Father in the name of the Son, is sent by the Son from the Father, rests on the Son, speaks of the Son, and glorifies the Son. And that's a mouthful. This is basically, he was trying to illustrate, this is what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. We haven't answered our question. Even with this, we haven't answered our question yet. Is the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Son or not? So the, my opinion is that when the New Testament speaks of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ, not just the Spirit of God, we're actually learning how the Spirit relates to the Son. If we have the Spirit of Christ in us, we have Christ himself in us. Furthermore, the filial clause I'm in favor of, uh, like a, a good Catholic, because it helps make Christ the center of God's redeeming activity. It shows, I think it does support the deity of Christ. It does show that Christ is God, and it supports this, this Christ being the focus of all the redeeming activity. That's all we can say. We can go into social Trinitarianism and things like that. But this, this argument cannot appeal to exegesis alone. It really involves arguments, concepts, languages, and, con and things like that that we really don't have time to get into. Now, if you're counting... You, you may remember I said there are eight reasons that I have for the schism. This filioque clause was only the seventh reason. It wasn't the eighth reason. So there was another reason that actually was just the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, Rome, <clears throat> the actual event that did this, Rome believed in using uh, unleavened bread. 
the East believed in using leavened bread. So the issue that really broke the camel's back, the straw, was bread. It was over what kind of bread do we use? On the right is unleavened bread. On the left is leavened bread. You won't see bread itself in a Roman church. You'll see a, a wafer like this. But in the Eastern Church, you will see regular bread. The Eastern Church accused Rome of using Jewish practices. The problem was, that's okay, Roman churches, if you're going to use that, we don't like it, we think it's wrong. But there were still Byzantine churches, Greek churches, Constantinople churches in Italy. And Rome was saying, you've also got to use unleavened bread. They were forcing their opinion on the Byzantine churches that existed in Rome. So the patriarch of Constantinople, Michael, and I have a hard time pronouncing this, Cerularius, he was a patriarch of Constantinople. He, say, he sent basically a nasty letter to the Rome and to the legates in Rome saying, stop doing this. Well, Rome didn't like that, and so they said, we need to talk about this. And so they sent the man on the right, Cardinal Humbert, to uh, Constantinople. Long story short, when he got there, Michael, the patriarch, didn't want to see him. He refused to see him. That made the other guy mad. The pope died in the meantime, so he was kind of a, a maverick there. And on July 16th, in the year 1054, he marched into the Hagia Sophia, the biggest church in Constantinople and in the east, and he slammed on the altar there a bulla, a bull, which was a letter of excommunication. He excommunicated everyone in the east, got on the ship and headed back. A week later, obviously the Easterners didn't like this, but a week later they excommunicated everybody in Rome, including the Pope and including the Cardinals and including everybody that shopped at their stores. So they had split formally then. The bread was the official divorce papers for the church, and that made it official. But as you saw, it was really due to a lot of things, at least eight different things that were adding up over a long period of time. So that's really how the church is split. Uh, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how did this affect things in the future? My question is always, how did this glorify God? How did this advance the purpose of the church? How did this set the stage for things? And this is a hard question on both the schism of the church and the crusades. It's a really hard question, almost unanswerable. But we do know that, yeah. What was the year? 1054, July 16th. Do you have a thought on that? Okay. I thought maybe you were going to say, oh, well, now I know how it did it. I was anxious to hear. What it did do, this schism, it reduced, it reduced Rome's authority in the East. Clearly, Rome had no more authority, even though it thought it did. It reduced the influence of Rome not only in the East, but in Africa, right around the corner from the East. It reduced that authority. Uh, it allowed, therefore, Islam easier access to the East and to Africa. And where did Islam make all of its inroads? Africa and the East. It tried to make inroads in the West, wasn't as successful. But what it also did do, and there's the schism, that's how it that's how it played out there. What it also did do, it introduced or made way for the Crusades. So in a way, the schism actually led to the Crusades. So I'll ask the same question. When I say the word Crusades, what comes to mind? What do you think about? The Knights Templar. The Knights Templar. Yeah, the, the, they definitely rose during the Crusades, yeah. No one has any other thoughts about the Crusades? What comes to mind? What's the picture in your mind? <coughs> I know you have thoughts. John? I just think of, I guess a lot of the Crusaders would take uh, relics back to the 
Ah, they absolutely would, and we'll talk about that. Yeah? Do you think that was the reason for them? No. Okay, okay, just curious. Kimberly? Richard the Lionhearted. Robin Hood, the Sheriff of Nottingham. That came from the Crusades. Real story. I, I don't know about Robin Hood necessarily, but Richard the Lionhearted. Larry? Oh, Jim. I thought it was Larry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many, many people think of just wars and blood and just battles and things like that. But yeah, in this section, I'm going to cover the background of the Crusades, the character and causes, and then several of the major Crusades, especially Crusades 1 through 4, with a couple of extra thrown in for, for good measure. The background of the Crusades, I'd like to start with Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. One would think the Crusaders had never heard of this verse. But as a matter of fact, they would think they were fulfilling this verse. How on earth would they think waging a crusade or a war would be filling this verse? Well, remember what I said last time when we looked at Augustine. He wrote the city of God. That was the pattern for all society going forward for the next thousand years. We have a city of man. We have a city of God. Our duty as Christians is to fulfill and make the world the city of God. And if we had to do that by force, we were to have dominion. If we had to do it by force, that's okay. We can do it by force. So the holy sites and the cities of the east were seen as the dominion of Christians. Well, since these were now, by this time, controlled by heretics, the Muslims, it was the duty of Christians to regain them. Now, from the time of, really, Constantine in the third century, Christians had visited the scenes of Christ's life. Uh, Constantine's mother was especially given over to relics and to all the things that related to the Holy Land. Charlemagne, in about the year 800 when he was crowned, he actually made it a little bit easier for pilgrims to go to the east. Uh, so for about 200 years now, it had been pretty good. They'd been actually able to go to the east. But sustaining this with the presence of Muslims required a very stable Muslim and Byzantine world, you can imagine. If you're going to travel somewhere as hard as it was, you had to have stability wherever you were traveling. Well, this started breaking down in the 11th century. Now, by the time of the Crusades in the 11th century, Muslims had already occupied Jerusalem uh, for 637, for about 400 years. They had already occupied that. But Jerusalem, right before the Crusades, in about the year 1071, uh, Jerusalem was taken over by what were known as the Seljuk Turks, the ancestors of the Ottoman. And for those of you who know your geography, this is the empire of the, of the Seljuk Turks. This area... Right here, this little tiny isthmus right there is Constantinople, and that's the gateway to the west there. These are the Balkans here. This is Greece here. They went all the way up, all of Turkey, of course, all the way up to Constantinople. So the Seljuk Turks actually were part of the problem, and they were the ones that were causing the problem, and, and they were intolerant of the Christians. Now, what about the character of the Crusades? What does crusade, what does the word come from? Who knows that? What word does the word crusade come from? Cross. cross. Right. Crusades come from the word cross because they felt like they were waging a battle for the cross. Now, the crusades were unique 
in a couple of ways. Number one, the Crusades were promoted by the papacy. Rome promoted them heavily. Another way that they were unique is that they, I already skipped ahead to that, is that they, they weren't just Knights Templar, they weren't just uh, soldiers, they were mostly just regular people. There were men, women, and ch children. They were farmers. They were aristocrats. They were kings, as you will find out about. They were uh, priests. They were monks. They were peasants. They were all over the walks of society. Uh, the reason why, why would people like this go into battle, travel all the way from, say, Germany all the way to Constantinople or to Jerusalem? Why would they do that? Well, the reason they would do that is because they were desperately poor. The Crusades provided a relief, a relief from drought, a relief from famine, uh, a relief from a lot of things, because on the way, you would be fed, you would be taken care of. So it was a relief from them. Uh, they were also told they would be completely protected by the Holy Spirit. So you have relief from your poverty with absolute guaranteed protection for your whole family. Not a bad deal. So you can go on this crusade, escape your, your horrible life, plus wanderlust, I'm sure, was part of it. But the problem was in motives. People thought that they were fighting a military service for God when actually they were fighting for the state. The character of the crusades would become what they were known for. The character of the crusades, the crusaders were described as behaving horribly with relish for chopping off heads and arms and legs and killing men, women, and children, including babies, for anyone they thought was, were uh, infidels. Muslims, Jews, and even the Eastern Orthodox sympathizers were considered fair game. So, causes of the Crusades. I had eight causes of the papal split. I have several causes of the Crusades. One of the first causes, economic greed. There's two ways to make money on a crusade. So keep this in mind if you're ever going to plan one. The two ways to make money in a crusade is to be a sender or is to be a goer. How do you make money as a sender for those you're sending out people to the, for the crusades? Well, you make money by building their ships that they need or building their wagons that they need. You make money by setting up an inn or a hostel all, along the way, and you could feed them and make lots of money. You make money by selling them relics when they're there. There's lots of money to be made in that way. How do you make money as a goer? Well, you make money as a goer, exactly as was mentioned. What your hope is, is to get things when you get there, to get relics, to get goodies, to get slaves even, and bring them back. So it was an economic venture. The second reason was papal expansionism. The pope had a desire still for land and power, and he, was seen, he saw this as a way to get back all the lands of the East that he felt like that Rome actually rightfully owned. The third reason to the people, this was probably the most important, was absolution from purgatory. Purgatory was a doctrine at this time that had been developed. Burning off of sins. We can't go to heaven just, through, just by faith. We go to heaven by our good works. And nobody can do enough good works to get them to heaven. So you have to make a pit stop in purgatory for tens of thousands of years to burn those sins off. Well, the Crusades offered an absolution, a full indulgence or a full pardon from time spent in purgatory. If you died in a crusade or even went on a crusade, you did not have to spend a single second in this terrible place. So you had full absolution from purgatory. Another reason for the crusades, vengeance. 
Well, it's a vengeance for the conquering of Christian lands, vengeance against the Muslims, a little bit of vengeance against the Eastern Orthodox for being so presumptuous as to think they could run the place. But vengeance was a, a common motive there. Of course, it, was, it started out as a desire for the pilgrims to continue going to the, uh, the Holy Land uh, to keep Jerusalem open because a pilgrimage was a way to grow in holiness and to get indulgences to get you out of purgatory. Now, most people think that the Crusades originated, that the whole idea originated from the West, and that's actually not true. It originated from the East. It originated from Constantinople itself. How did this happen? Well, this is a man on the left named Alexius. He's one of several Alexi that are in Constantinople as an emperor. And he actually, is, this is Alexius I, and he submitted a, uh, a request to the Pope in Rome before the Crusades started saying, hey, come help me with these Turks. I can't fight them alone. They're too overwhelming for us. The reason he gave them was not just because you like us so much. The reason he gave them was, we're the seat of all these relics, all these amazing things. This is the doors to the Hagia Sophia. Interesting now, it's a modern picture. You can see the Shahada, the Islamic... Uh, statement there inside because now it's an Islamic place. But back then it was one of the holiest places in, in Eastern Christianity or in all of Christianity. But it was filled. The reason it was holy is it was filled with relics. These doors that you see behind you were theoretically taken off of the wood from Noah's Ark. So they saved the wood. All that time they made these doors from it. The chains that are on the doors were supposedly the chains that held Paul when he was a prisoner. Uh, what other things are there there? There is a pedestal with oil and wood from Noah's Ark, which can heal. Uh, there was a stone pedestal, which is still there, on which Jesus supposedly sat when he spoke with the woman at the well. So they saved that. They were very forward-thinking all the way from, <laughs> from history. There was a chest containing 14,000 relics of the infants killed by Herod. So they saved those too. These are all a part of the relics. And this is what Alexius was saying. Hey, you got to come rescue us. Do you want the Muslims to get a hold of this? They'll destroy it. You know we can't trust them with things. So that was part of the reason why. They also, there was something called millenarianism. They wanted to usher in the end of the world. It was a popular doctrine in the 11th century that the, world was, the world's end was imminent. Uh, there was also a desire for piety. Uh, that speaks for itself. Um, there was a desire to reunify the church under Catholicism. The East had no desire to reunify the church. It was Rome that had this desire. So they wanted to reunify the churches under Catholicism. And then there was a desire for the church to gain control over the land. The church in Rome was in an immoral relationship with many landowners. It was very bad. They were being controlled by the landowners. And the landowners were being very, very persnickety about their lands. The Pope had to deal with this somehow. What better way to deal with it than to send them on a crusade? I'll just get all the nobles out of here. Then I don't have trouble with them. They're not causing problems. And I'll just take over their lands and do what I want to with them. So it was an effort to get rid of all of these, these uh, people that were not allowing him to have full control. So the thought was the Muslims were actually standing in the way of all this. The real foundation of the Crusades was a combination of the desire to conquer and obtain land from the infidel with the practice of pilgrimage to the Holy Land all wrapped up in an erroneous belief and in indulgences. So let's talk about just a few of the Crusades. The Crusades, the official beginning was November 
1095, Pope Urban II, and this is him standing there at a, at a council. He gave a rousing sermon on the need to rescue the Holy Land from the Muslims. Now, it was a cold November day in France in the year 1095. He stood in the fields of a city called Claremont, France, and he spoke to an assembly of thousands, princes and knights and bishops and priests and monks, but he had to paint a gruesome picture. Remember, this is before uh, TV, this is before movies, and it's before microphones. But what he did was, he used their love for fighting, because everyone loved fighting, and he challenged them to redirect their killing. If you must have blood, he said, bathe in the blood of infidels. Soldiers of hell become soldiers of the living God. Therefore, the Christian faith was committed to its own jihad. I have part of his speech here, and a few of the things he said was that he, there was a horrible tale of an accursed race that had invaded the lands of Christians and depopulated them by sword, pillage, and fire, on whom, therefore, this is him speaking, is the task of avenging these wrongs and of recovering this territory incumbent, if not upon you. You upon whom, uh, above other nations, God has conferred remarkable glory. So take up arms and fight for this battle. It is the only warfare that is righteous, for it is charity, or it is good for you to risk your life for your brothers. So he's the one that prompted it from an official standpoint, but the people also had their own leaders. One of these was this guy, Peter the Hermit. He was from France. He was a monk and a priest. He claimed to have been appointed by Christ himself, and he said he actually had a divine letter from Jesus to prove it. So who's going to doubt that if you actually have a very letter from Jesus saying, go on this crusade? He said the reason why he wanted to do this is because he went on a pilgrimage to Israel, and he wasn't treated very well. So he wanted to take Israel back or take Jerusalem back. He used his experience and became an emotional revivalist, and he recruited tens of thousands, 20,000 men, women, and children, but they were all very, very poor. This was, this was what was called the People's Crusade, and it actually happened before any of the Crusades, or maybe sort of as a part of it. Now, the Crusade, he gathered people together in April in France to start preparing for the Crusades. You can't go on a crusade until August. The Pope had said this. Why August? August, because on the way, it's a long way to the, to the Holy Land, you're going through the fall time. You've got 30,000 people behind you, you've got to feed them. If you start off in the spring, they're going to starve to death. If you start in August, you'll go through the fall, and you can all just take whatever crops you come across and eat that way. But, so he was there. Meanwhile, some of his followers, though, decided to set off themselves. One of these people that set off was a man named Walter the Penniless, and he started by leading a group of about 20,000 people to the Holy Lands way early, six months too early. Interestingly enough, Belgrade and Serbia is the, was the gateway for the Eastern Empire. So this man made it all the way to Belgrade. They were surprised. They were scared. There's an army of 20,000, not soldiers, but just riffraff that are outside of your city walls, and you don't know what to do with them. So what do you do? Well, you don't do anything with them. You keep your walls closed. Well, this did not make them mad. The governor didn't let them in. They were, they were starving to death. And they tried to rob a store in a city just, a town just outside of Belgrade, uh, because he wouldn't let them in. And it caused a riot among the people. They pillaged the countryside. And meanwhile, Peter's forces up in Germany had started coming down, and they met them there. And so when they met them there, they saw all these 
riots going off. They got into an argument over a pair of shoes at one of the local stores that led to another riot. They, so they just said, you know what, we're just going to kill everybody. So they just started killing everybody and robbing people. Good motive for the Crusades. Um, they ended up marching all the way down to southern Serbia. Another fight broke out. The main thing to know is that most of these people, the first, the People's Crusade, they never actually made it to the Holy Land. They actually never made it out of the Balkans. Most of them were captured and sold off as slaves. Yet another group had started out from Germany coming down, but they didn't even wait to get to the Balkans. They started killing Jews up in Germany on their way down. Because after all, a Jew is just as bad as a Muslim, so let's just start killing them as well. So that's how the Crusades got started. Not actually on a good foot. The first official crusade, though, about 300,000 people. These 300,000 people did make it to the Holy Land, and they slaughtered Jews, Arab Christians, Muslims, men, women, and children. This caused further warring attitude, the f further breakdown between Muslims and Christians that actually lasts to this day. This was really the only successful crusade to ever occur, if you think of it in a, in a temporal sense. But it still caused a lot of strife. The interesting thing about this crusade is it actually established the first Latin kingdom of Jerusalem that would last 100 years. Now, I don't like to brag usually when I'm up on the stage, but this man's name, the first king of, Latin, of uh, Jerusalem, was Baldwin. Some people see a resemblance. I'll leave it at, at that. <laughs> I don't know if I want a resemblance, but... So they were successful in setting up the first Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. What about the second crusade? Well, this was initiated by a man named this man, Bernard of Clairvaux, but most of these crusaders died in Asia Minor also from fever, starvation, and from the Turks, and this crusade failed. The third crusade, this was the one that Kimberly was mentioning. This was the one that actually was, took place about 100 years after the first one, and it involved three of the greatest kings in Europe, Frederick Barbarossa, Holy Roman Emperor, Philip Augustus, and Richard Coudillon, Richard the Lionhearted. So he was the one that actually reached a treaty with the, I don't know which one of these men he is, but he reached a treaty with Saladin, the, uh, the emperor, or the ruler of the crusade. So that was slightly popular. Now there was a crusade that took place between the third and the fourth crusade. And quickly I'll just say, this was called the children's crusade. There's not many records about the children's crusade. We don't know much about it. But it was started in northern France and Germany and led by two boys. It was never approved by the king or pope and it never really got started. It was the, uh, the idea was promoted to the children, and they said that children would do what the grown-ups could not do. So everyone sent their children to the Crusades. They marched to the coast for ships headed to the Holy Land. They encountered problems in Genoa, Italy, where your daughter is, actually, as well as uh, in Marseille, France. The crusade disintegrated as soon as these kids got to the coast. And unfortunately, they were tricked and deceived into getting on ships to go to the Holy Land, saying, we'll take you there to the Holy Land. And they were all sold as slaves or killed. So they were never seen again by their parents. The fourth crusade, very quickly, was the one that's most memorable. And I'll just say, the reason it's most memorable, this would lead not to the conquest of Jerusalem, but to the siege of Constantinople itself. It would ensure, this crusade would ensure that the Eastern and Western churches would never be reunited again. So the crusaders, at this, by this time, they were mistrusted by the Orthodox East anyway, and because their motives were primarily material. So they were hated by, the Easterners were hated by the Western crusaders also, almost as much as the Muslims. So therefore they judged each other, one another, as not Christian. 
The problem with this crusade, in a nutshell, transportation. This crusade was by sea, and Venice was a kingdom at that time, and Venice said, hey, we'll build you ships to go on the crusade. That's a lot of money for us. 30,000 people, 30,000 soldiers, we'll build you the ships, no problem. The problem is, when the crusaders got there, there weren't 30,000 men, there were 12,000 people. So Venice is not happy because they had already built these ships and they wanted the money for these, for these people, or for these ships. But the crusaders couldn't do that. So it all came to a standstill. And they said, well, hey, we'll make a deal with you. Venice at that time owned a lot of the coastline of the, the Balkans. And they said, we'll let you go on credit and you'll have the ships if you promise to conquer the city named Zadar. Zadar is in Croatia. Zadar was a Christian city. It was not part of the deal. The Pope did not want this to happen and said this would be bad news if you did it, but they did it anyway because the rulers of the ships didn't tell their men, well, you'll be excommunicated if you do this until after the fact. They captured Zadar, gave it back to the Venetian kingdom. Meantime, another person uh, named another Alexius from Constantinople said, hey, my father was the king in Constantinople. He was kicked off the throne by my uncle, who had a propensity for blinding people. If you take me back to Constantinople, put me back on the throne with my father Isaac, we'll give you all kinds of treasures. It's going to be great. We're going to have a great time. But they got back there and they found out it wasn't a great time. They, did not, uh, they were able to put him back on the throne. It didn't last very long, and it caused, like I said, a further breakdown of things. It did enable them to bring back lots of relics. I forget who said the relics, maybe John. Uh, if you go to Venice these days, you will actually see relics, especially at San Marcos Church, from the Fourth Crusade. They brought them all back and they put them in the church. These are relics there. These four horses are in the church itself. That's from Constantinople. The doors themselves are from Constantinople, from the Fourth Crusade. These these four statues are porphyry. They're ancient. They're about 1,500 years old, and that's San Marcos Church. So they brought back all these relics that were invaluable to the church, and now they belong to Rome. Well, that obviously infuriated the East, and they did not like that. Uh, they also established an empire there, uh, the, Latin emperor, or the Latin Empire of Constantinople. Oddly enough, this man also was named Baldwin. So both the kings were oddly named Baldwin, uh, not to be confused with the other. But the goal to recapture Jerusalem never happened. They never got to Jerusalem. They stopped at Constantinople, and it ruined the relationship there. So, Muslim forces eventually would recapture Jerusalem for the last time in 1244, starting the ends of the Crusades. The Crusades themselves would be a tool that were used to stop the expansion of Islam in the West and to weaken the Eastern power of the emperors. Transportation did increase after the Crusades. Papal power did increase after the Crusades. It caused an irretrievable damage to the name of Christianity in the East because of, and especially Christian violence in the minds of many Muslims. They think about this because the Crusaders were so ruthless, and that's what's embedded and engraved in the mind of Muslims today, even to this day. Uh, eventually, it would lead to the fall of Constantinople in 1453 because the East was so weakened that the Ottoman Turks were able to take this over. Interestingly enough, this fall of Constantinople in 1453 would cause, would set the stage and would cause actually the Reformation to happen. If Constantinople had not fell in 1453, we may not have had a Reformation in the West. So that's an interesting story in and of itself. There's where I'll, there's where I'll stop.
Uh, I want a minute over. Is there a quick question I can cover before we go? I know that was awfully fast. Okay, no questions 